0: Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co host, Brett Thayer.
1: And I am Nicole Kabilis. Today's episode, we're going to talk about autism masking. Specifically, we're going to discuss what autistic masking is, why masking is encouraged, the physical and mental health consequences of masking, how the medical and social models of disability reinforce masking the benefits of unmasking and how to unmask, as well as a list of resources on the topic of unmasking.
0: Okay, so what is autistic masking? Or I kind of like this idea of autistic camouflaging because the idea is then you're camouflaging yourself as a neurodiverse person into fitting into the neurotypical world. So suppressing the classic autistic behaviors and mimicking neurotypical behaviors, Um, in order to blend in with your peers and not be outed as being different is one way to think about it. Children with autism will mask their differences whether or not they have autism diagnosis or know that they are on the spectrum. If a child senses they are different and could experience alienation and bullying for it, they will mask their natural behavior. Masking can be done um of the one of the primary primary reasons why a child with autism experiences challenging challenges in receiving a diagnosis. For example, the child isn't suspected to have autism if they have good social skills. Goal of masking is something very important to the person with autism, to their family members, or to therapists or teachers, which hinges on the person with autism being perceived as neurotypical. And girls are more likely to mask their autism than boys. And it's an unconscious social survival strategy. So some example of masking behaviors. Uh, Forcing eye contact during conversations, even though that's uncomfortable. Um, Copying somebody else's facial expressions. Mimicking gestures. Hiding or minimizing personal interests. Scripting conversations. Pushing through sensory discomforts. Or disguising... Stimming behavior, or maybe even putting, like, if, if, if there's an urge to stem, you might see some people just, like, put their hands underneath their arms and just kind of suppress that that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Why is masking encouraged? It protects a person from experiencing bullying and alienation, helping them to make friends, socialize with peers, and date without, with label avoidance. It supports professional advancement, such as getting and keeping a job. It supports cultural and family values for a normal, socially acceptable child. It protects from other stigma, prejudice, and discrimination, such as ableism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, et cetera. And it also prevents stigma and discrimination on the basis of mental health. It protects from unhelpful police intervention, which has a lot to do with police not getting a lot of training on how to adequately intervene in a way that makes a person with autism feel safe and comfortable. It proves the capability to receive custody of children in a divorce. So for example, if there is a custody concern, a neurotypical spouse might try to convince the jury that a person with autism is incapable of being a good provider because they are on the autism spectrum, which is heavily stigmatic. Masking is also a way to compensate for skills that a person on the autism spectrum might lack, such as social skills. Masking is a way to learn those skills through performance, mimicry, and adaptability. It puts more emotional labor on the neurodiverse person to fit into neurotypical norms rather than neurotypical people being asked to meet the autistic person where they're at. An autistic person may force themselves to mask despite support from parents and support staff not to do so. Sometimes a neurotypical person might encourage masking as a way to prevent the person with autism to not experience adversity for being different, which is a form of overprotection. And masking also helps a person with autism avoid being associated with negative stereotypes of being autistic, such as being rude and socially inappropriate, overly obsessing over a certain topic, high emotional sensitivity and propensity for violence. The consequences of masking is that a person with autism will experience higher rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. It creates autistic burnout, which is the exhaustion of masking in a neurotypical world without a break. It prevents cultivating an authentic individuated identity, which gives meaning and purpose to one's life. And in that case, another way of masking is if you have a special interest, but you don't want to pursue that special interest because there's a mark of social shame associated with it. Masking still doesn't 100% prevent experiences of bullying, alienation, rejection, discrimination, et cetera. So people with autism can experience a lot of hopelessness of, around putting so much effort to act and blend in with neurotypical society and they just aren't able to do that.
0: Right, and um, they get bullied anyway. I mean it yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean I I I will say that I've had that experience where it's like people always kind of sniff out that I'm different um whether or not I'm open about my autism and I don't even feel like I'm masking but it's like people will notice things in your tone, your nonverbal cues and in right. your eye contact. So it's, it's really hard and it, and it makes people with autism feel like they're viewed under a magnifying glass. Yeah. Masking does not initiate education and advocacy awareness about autism to create broader cultural shifts towards understanding autism. The person with autism does not learn self-advocacy skills, especially when it comes to accommodations. Masking teaches someone to reject their needs and wants in order to fit in. And then cisgender heterosexual white boys with autism are more likely to receive attention and support for being neurodiverse than autistic girls, autistic people of color, and autistic LGBTQ plus people. So getting that support from the perspective of masking has a lot of different factors. And sometimes the assessment for autism is heavily biased towards, you know, positions of privilege, such as Mm. being cisgender, heterosexual, Mm -hmm. white. And then sometimes the process of seeking a diagnosis can be based on those cultural views. um, As well as you know, if one person is experiencing adversity for one type of identity, they might not seek an autism diagnosis because maybe they don't want extra adversity on top of what they're already going through.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: and there's also you know struggle with resources. so parents mm. may encourage um, a person with autism to mask because maybe they can't afford to seek support. Um, there's a lot of complicated reasons and and I'm right. not speaking from personal experience, I can only assume. Um, But there are a lot of subconscious reasons why different groups of people will encourage masking, and there are also various conscious reasons. Mm -hmm. So, Brett, what has been your son Josh's experience with masking his autism?
0: Well, he explained that he had tried to hide his autism from his friends, but not his family members, right? And so that kind of goes into, right, the next... The next section is, you know, what were the outside fluences that caused this to happen? Right? Um, And he explained that he didn't want people to know that he was different, right? Or stupid. Right? And he said once his friends found out about it, um, they did make fun of him, but then they later glossed over it, um, and he ended up not caring as much as he did in the beginning. Mm -hmm.
1: And that, that brings up a couple of points in my mind. Um, First, I want to talk about it from the perspective of parents. I think a child with autism is less likely to mask around their parents if their parents are promoting an environment of acceptance. And, you know, it's up to the child to determine like how comfortable they are with expressing themselves. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if the parent is creating that welcoming, supportive atmosphere, then it really gives the child more autonomy of how they want to express it at home versus, Mm -hmm, you know, if you have a parent who has a lot of shame, frustration, uh, really pushes the child to act normal, maybe there are some cultural factors, um, you know, then that can create a lot of fear about unmasking at home. And I've met a lot of adults with autism who get diagnosed later in life. And they said that, you know, telling their parents, that they have an autism diagnosis. It's like a whole coming out process, like if mm. you came out as gay or transgender. Right. And some parents uh, are relieved because they're like, oh, for you know, your entire childhood when you mm-hmm. struggled, now I have context for why. But right. then on the other hand, there are some parents that uh, are in denial. They don't understand what the autism spectrum is, so they're really confused right. or they, they may just reject it because they struggle, you know, having some vicarious goals and intentions for their own child. And so, right. yeah, and so then, I, I I guess to summarize, I, I do think the parents' perspective of autism has a very huge impact on how comfortable the child feels with unmasking at home.
0: Right. And it could also go to, you know, as a the adult finding out they have autism and then revealing to to their parents. And I can imagine another response would be guilt or shame of the parent not realizing that their child needed help and they didn't provide it.
1: Yeah, I've heard that a few times from parents of, you know, teenagers and young adults. Mm-hmm. And to that, I say, like, parents just are not going to be experts on everything
0: right that doesn't mean that they don't feel like they want to help their child though
1: oh absolutely and and i think you know first off like how many parents even really know about the autism spectrum right off the bat right and then and then the second part of it is um it's a spectrum you know Mm -hmm. not everybody has this stereotypical presentation and you know, and and I think about when I was diagnosed, I had very classic autistic behaviors, I banged right. my head, I had meltdowns all the time, I had delayed milestone development. Mm. And not every child with autism has those, you know, stereotypical autistic behaviors as a toddler. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's not that parents are being neglectful it's really that, you know, those behaviors present differently. And, Mm
0: -hmm, you know, a
1: child may think that they need to mask at a young age, but then if there's an episode of anxiety or depression, or, um, I mean, I know that some people have gotten diagnosed with autism when they were in an inpatient mental health clinic from like Mm. suicidal ideation. Um, You know, so so sometimes those diagnoses those diagnoses come out from, you know, crisis and right, right. and sometimes it's very cathartic for an adult with autism to seek out their own diagnosis rather mm-hmm. than, you know, the parent putting their oh, perspective sure. on it. So, well, for sure I because, think, you know, somebody's yeah. trying to
0: look for help. They 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 understand that they have struggles and they're trying to get help for it.
1: Yeah, I think from having talked to some parents of, you know, teens and young adults with autism, I think their attitude is as long as they have, you know, some diagnosis, they're just relieved that they have next steps to get help rather than being in this gray area of like, you know, what do I do from here? Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk about is that this whole idea that you need to mask as a way to maintain friendships. And,
2: Mm. and
1: I see a lot of parallels between you know, people who mask their autism out of, you know, fear of bullying and rejection. That's very similar to, and not the same, but they're just that there's an intersectionality with, you know, kids that are gay or transgender or non-binary. And there's that coming out process of like, if they know the truth of who I am, how are people going to respond?
0: Right. I think that's a, that's, you know, a genuine fear.
1: It is, it is. And I think for me, like I was always encouraged to hide that part of myself to not experience being bullied, which I, I did anyway, because I was a nerdy kid who had weird interests and, you know, people who are not autistic will get bullied for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that the things I've learned, you know, now that I'm almost 32 is that I don't want friends where I would have to, you know, mask my autism around right, them right, I'm too. Course. I'm too open and passionate about being autistic mm-hmm. that I feel like if I had to mask my autism around my friends, it would just be too painful. So, I mean, right. I remember as early as like middle school, I was open about my autism mm-hmm. and I I really didn't get the sense that my friends rejected me. In fact, uh, when I was 12, I I spoke in front of Colorado legislation to support passing a bill for autism funding for families who couldn't afford treatment. And it was part of an initiative by the Autism Society of Colorado. I got in the newspaper. So this was like my mom's biggest fear because when the executive director approached us with this opportunity my mom was like, I don't want Nicole to have that level of attention or spotlight on her autism, because what if she experiences adversity?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I don't know what ended up happening, but she she ended up kind of putting the decision on me. And she was like, what do you think about this? And I wasn't even thinking about like, I didn't even think it was going to be like media publicized. I'm like, oh, talking yeah. in front of Colorado legislation. That's awesome. So I did it and I ended up getting in the newspaper mm-hmm. and my whole middle school found out about it and I was congratulated. And, and I will tell you, so many peers of mine probably had no clue what autism was, but the fact that I was in the newspaper for something that, you know, people even at, you know, 11, 12 years old, had a sense that it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. I I can't tell you how many peers and friends and teachers came up to me and they were like, oh my God, this is awesome. Good for you. Um, So I don't think that I've ever, I don't think that I've ever directly been alienated or bullied from people knowing that I was autistic. I think Mm. that I've been, you know, bullied and alienated and rejected for behaviors that made people uncomfortable, but I don't think my peers were able to make that association of this behavior is autism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why I'm being bullied. Which right. Is, it's, again,
0: yeah, it's just the unusual behaviors that you have, right. That we talked about.
1: Right. And so it's kind of
0: coming out and then they you're making fun of that. Right. But, I, of that.
1: but it's just so emotionally, like, I feel very bottled up if I ask. And so it's really important to me that my friends, you know, that I'm able to talk to them about my advocacy work. I have a lot of friends, neurotypical friends that are like, oh my God, I, you know, I want to listen to your podcast. And I'm like, really? Like you, you have nothing to do with autism, but they want to do it to support me. Um, You know, my husband, I mean, I wouldn't say he's like passionate about advocacy the way I am, but you know, he, He lets me express myself the way I want to. Um, Professionally, it's it's very important to me that I am open about myself. And Mm -hmm. so I think what I like to tell people is that if you're open about who you are, you will find the right people in the sense that like you don't want to be friends with people who restrict your ability to be your authentic self. Yeah. You will find friends and, you know, granted, it's not, maybe it won't be a lot of friends, but, you know, people with autism probably don't want a large social circle anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's about having that faith that there will be people who come into your life who are capable of receiving it. And right. I will also add that when you get older, your social options get wider, You know, you're very restricted when you're a kid and then the more autonomy you get as a as a teenager, as an adult, to be able to connect with, you know, different groups of people, Um, you know, and especially for me as an adult, like I'm at a stage in my life where I'm actively seeking out relationships with other people with autism, which I I don't want to say that I was discouraged, but it wasn't something that I wanted to seek out and it's Mm -hmm. been really cathartic to have other friends, you know, with autism. And so, you know, and I also think that adults, you know, the right adults, if you will, um, are more intellectually capable of being open minded to difference than kids are. And so, you know, I think that freedom to unmask when it when it involves friends, it does get easier um, when you're an adult. And so I think I think parents can help their kids by maybe just talking about the pros and cons of masking as a way to make friends. And then also talk about like, how do you make friends and unmask? So it's kind of the kid is exploring both dynamics. So it's not this black and white. Well, if your autism shows, you're not going to make friends. That's just not true. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So. What do you think were the outside influences that caused your son, Josh, to want to mask his autism? Was there peer pressure or well-intentioned teachers and therapists that told him to mask as a way to protect himself?
0: Right. So it wasn't um, teachers telling him this. It wasn't therapists telling him this. It was himself telling him that I don't want other people to know that I'm autistic because in his mind, uh, autism is the equivalence of being stupid. Right And so you know, this is what you know as a, as a child in elementary school, and we could talk about different stages, right? So in our next episode after this, uh, we're going to talk about transitions and how and Josh was hugely impacted by transitions. And so the major transitions in his school life were elementary school, middle school, and high school. So those are all very different experiences. So Josh in elementary school then felt that this autism thing whatever it was when he began to understand it at first he's not he doesn't understand what it is right so um in the first part of elementary school he just has all these um behaviors and he doesn't know why they're happening he doesn't know why he has meltdowns right at towards the end of elementary school he's figuring things out he's figuring out his behaviors um he's able to uh, talk about Autism, well, kind of, he has this idea of what it is. His teachers understand what it is because he has an IEP. And so he's getting those helps and supports. Then middle school happens and it's a whole different thing. So we now we have the transition stress of that. Um, and now with middle school, if we all go back to our middle school experience, it's very intensive and relationships become super, super important. And that's where he's saying that he doesn't want to share that he has autism because of he he doesn't want his friends to think he's stupid right Mm -hmm. um and he said he was you know once they did find out they did bully him over it but then they um over they glossed over it right and um in in high school as he went into high school he found that he just really didn't care about being uh labeled as autistic as much because his father me was in high school and i'm a teacher there so we're both in the same building, and I'm I'm the one advocating for him. Like, hey, we need these supports. We need this and this. And teachers are coming to me. It's like Josh is struggling to turn things in. What do I need to do? i will try to talk to him about this or that or the other thing. And so he had supports all the way through high school. So it was a much different experience than um, the middle school experience. And that was that was the probably key turning point when he's really trying to um, mask his behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think that when a child with autism is going through those major social and academic transitions like elementary to middle school, middle school to high school, do you think that masking autism is a way to control that overwhelm of contrast and differences in social expectations? Because maybe a person who masks feels like if I hide my autism, there's some familiarity and predictability with that assimilation
0: maybe i mean it's hard to it's hard for me to put my mind in that space um all i can think of in in my middle school experience because i had a transition because i went from an elementary school and then i moved and then i went to a middle school so it was a brand new situation i'm trying to make friends And I just want to fit in. And that happened in high school, too. So I moved again, and it's a brand new situation. And I I remember telling my teachers, you know, I don't want to be different. I just want to fit in. So I can imagine that Josh felt the same way. I don't want to be different. I just want to fit in because I'm struggling enough with this transition and new teachers and new classes and new expectations. All of this is bordering on overwhelm with all of these things that are happening and you want me to be forthcoming about this um, behavior that I have that that's not that's different, right? I don't want to be different I want to be I just want to be quote unquote normal and fit in and figure things out. So all it, I can say almost, is that go ahead yeah,
1: it's like from an external locus of control it's like masking is the path of least resistance, even though from an internal locus it's the path of greatest resistance like
0: Oh, and you don't think about that, yeah.
1: No. And I do think masking oftentimes is more unconscious than conscious, but I was thinking about how, when you're a preteen, you get to the point where you want to have more control over your image. Oh,
0: definitely. And,
1: you know, I think the expression or suppression of your autistic diagnosis is a very, very big part of that. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it, it's, it's, The child is transitioning from the parent trying to curate, you know, how the child feels about autism, how the world receives their autism to then Mm -hmm. the child being like, all right, I'm going to have power to curate how things go.
0: Right. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's an evolution, right? That, um, all of us go through as we transition from a child to an adult Yeah, and we make new friends. And then, you know, what do we tell our new friends about us? Um, how... How trusting can I be? Have I been hurt before? Have I been betrayed before? Um, from my friends who I shared something with and it came out and they told everybody and now I'm being made fun of for that. I mean, all of those are wrapped up into that experience. And I'm sure that that plays a part on whether, you know, somebody can trust somebody else to say, yeah, I have this, you know, I'm autistic. Will you, you know, they're, they're looking for supports for that.
2: It is and it's, it's it's a
0: moment of vulnerability too. I mean you know, this is, this is something that they, it's, it's a personal, very personal, um, experience to, to share, um, something like that with somebody else.
1: Yeah. And I think that there's layers to it too, because Definitely. I think about like my friends joke that they know I'm autistic because it's the first thing I <laughs> reveal about myself Right. because I'm just so like open and passionate and autism is my special interest. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, it's like these layers of vulnerability. It's like when I, when I come out as being autistic, it's like, Oh, okay. Like nobody really responds, but then it's, it's the layers of vulnerability of like the negative behaviors. And when I say negative, I mean like stigmatic perceptions of behaviors. Um, that's where I think the vulnerability really comes out for me is like, how are people going to care for me when I'm, not having my best day and when mm-hmm. I'm, you know, because I'm having a bad sensory day or I'm having mm-hmm. a bad mental health day where it's like, I just can't ask, mm-hmm. um, how are people going to receive me? So I think that there's layers of openness when Definitely. it comes to an autism diagnosis. And for some people, like just even voicing it, mm-hmm. um, that can be an extreme vulnerability. And then Absolutely. for others like me, where it's like, I'm an open book and right, I'm right. maybe a little too much of an oversharer. Like, mm-hmm. I guess it's, it's, uh, if I really bear my soul to somebody, uh, in relation to being neurodiverse, are they wise and open-minded and compassionate enough to hold space and uplift me mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not everybody is right. Um, anyway. Did you and Josh's mom have parenting values that reinforced Josh's decision to mask his autism? Were you t- were you too concerned for his emotional safety and his professional success?
0: Okay, so well, as a teacher, um, as soon as we found out that uh, Joshua is autistic, you know, I'm I'm saying, okay, what supports can we get? You know, who can help? How can we help him? Everybody needs to know, right? How can we? structure his iep to get him support so i'm not i'm you know as a parent i'm i'm seeing school as an ally and i'm seeing um teachers as an ally so i want that um, to be as helpful as i can any outside resources that we went through um, any therapies that we went through i want those two institutions to communicate right the uh, therapist to the school the school to the therapist i want it to be an open book so you know we can maximize the help for Joshua. Now I can understand that not all parents feel that way. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, this idea of labeling. So I've heard from other parents that, um, well, I don't want my child to be autistic. I don't want an IEP because then he's going to be labeled. What does that mean? From the parent's point of view and in their mindset, they feel like, well, my child is different. And because he's Different, or she is different. They're going to be treated differently, and they're not going to have a chance to be treated as a neurotypical kid, right? And so, I think that that's a path that a lot of parents go down in terms of trying to mask their their child's autism um, in public.
1: Mm-hmm. What I noticed as a teacher, and and not, I guess, directly in experience. I've just heard this from like people in the special education departments or counselors, but they'll say that the parent uh, very adamantly doesn't want their child labeled and doesn't want to be treated differently. But mm-hmm. then there's this other side of them, same parents right. that are like, I don't want to let go of the accommodations Um, because it's right. like they're, they're clinging to that need for their child to be successful as possible, but also having this inner conflict of, in order for my child to be as academically successful as possible, they have to have that label. And so I, I've heard a few counselors and special educators getting frustrated by that Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: it's like, why can't you just accept where your child is at? And, you know, and, and, and it's not like people are revealing that the child has an IEP and there are plenty of you know, kids who are not on the autism spectrum who have IEPs and right. you wouldn't be able to, you know, tell that that there's a difference.
0: Right, um, right. I think I think um another part of it is if that and and parents don't know this, but uh we as as teachers cannot reveal to other students or parents or anybody else that um so and so has an IEP or five or four. We cannot that's not public information. So some parents I think assume that well if my if my child has an iep or 504 that everybody's going to know about it and they're going to treat my child differently and that's not true right it's only for it's a need-to-know basis that this child's teachers know this so they can provide accommodations it's not public knowledge
1: yeah well and i think that sometimes it comes down to how much individual attention is the child getting is the is the teacher hovering over the child, trying to make sure that they're getting everything done. And, and I think teachers are very good about striking that balance of like, I'm going to make sure I frequently check in on you. And I'm right, also right. going to give you space to yes. work on your own. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was told early on in my career, you know, teach to the IEP, you know, teach every kid as if they all have an IEP, so that everybody benefits. And then that way the teacher isn't getting burned out with, oh my God, I have 30 kids who have 504s and IPs, and I got to spread myself thin trying to help right. every, every kid. Now, I also think that what when I read parent testimony or when I read books, autobiographies by people with autism, the common criticism that they get from teachers is like, they'll get an accommodation, but they'll be punished for behaviors that, you know, they should know better. Um so there's kind of this scolding or this sort of public humiliation. So there isn't really empathy per se and so then the parents get upset because they're like, "Hey, like this is why my child does what they do and please don't treat them that way." Um I don't think a teacher would ever just straight up out a kid, you know, and say, "Oh, this kid has autism." Right. But I've read stories where you know kids are called out in front of um, other students, and 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 you know I don't want to say teachers don't do this today, but a lot of these stories occur in like the the 80s and you know the 90s, and so I I do think I think teachers have grown to be a lot more sensitive and a lot more tactful, and you know I think for better or worse the parent wrath. Certainly gets teachers to be a lot more careful. Right. Um, and so I, I, I agree. I think that uh, with more understanding of neurodiversity in schools, schools right. can be um, exactly. allies. and And I will tell you, you know, when I struggled socially, I really f- relied on my teachers, and I even had a, a social skills tutor who was a former teacher. And I really relied on them to give me a social skills education on, you know, how do I
2: navigate
1: Mm. this, this sort of environment? So I agree. I think, I think it's just so important that there are, there's at least one person in every environment that child goes into that's a safe ally. Absolutely. Um, You know, and I think even with peers, like
0: Mm -hmm.
1: hopefully that person will find one friend that can be that ally, that can kind of be their wingman. And and if they right. don't find that, like, I remember, you know, I got bullied by my own friends and yes, I was course. alienated and abandoned. And I got so fed up with this victim mindset that, mm-hmm. you know, my autism is the reason that I'm losing my friends, that I just hit the books. Mm-hmm. I read about all sorts of social skills and I put in the effort to make my social life better. And I ended up meeting significantly better people, you know, so
2: right.
1: it, it is possible. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, just because you have autism doesn't mean that you're not locked into alienation, bullying, like you can pull yourself out of it, whether it's from your own self motivation, or, or finding those uh, pure and adult allies that can help you.
0: Right. And that's important. Um, you you know, it's, we tell this to students all the time, whether they're neurodiverse or neurotypical, it's so important to find friends that you can count on and that you can trust. It's very important.
1: Yeah. And, and I will also say maybe some of the best people, like in my experience that I felt really connected with is if you're like, uh, in high school, like some um, high school programs will offer like peer mentors where a high school, mm-hmm. you know, neurotypical or mild or moderate neurodiverse yes. kid can yes. partner with a kid with special needs. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, those, those neurotypical peers that are those mentors are great people Absolutely. to be around.
0: And And typically they have brothers or sisters who are neurodiverse.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um. Did you notice any emotional struggles with Josh as a result of the pressure to mask his autism?
0: Okay, so um, I had a conversation recently about about this with him, and he, you know, I've noticed that Josh has always been a quiet kind of kid, and he would not want to be singled out as being different. Right. That being said, when I asked him this question, he said, "I wanted to act as normal because I was afraid of autism." and what people believed it was at the time and the potential abuse that I thought would come from other kids and teachers in middle school. And he goes on to say, this is what I thought about it, but not what actually happened. He wanted to make that absolutely clear. So in his mind, he didn't want to come out as autistic because he was um, assuming that a lot of things, negative things were going to happen because of that.
1: Yeah. I think that's really powerful that sometimes masking comes from the perception that bad things are going to happen to you. And, and that can come from a lot of, uh, I guess in cognitive behavior, behavior therapy, it's, it's that negative programming of like black and white thinking, catastrophizing, um, fortune telling. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, and I think because of that trauma, and the fear of being different, you know, uh, people with autism are very cautious, very guarded, very like putting a wall up. And it takes a long time to build that trust. And and it takes even longer to really put that uh, mask down. I guess in my experience as a teacher and as, you know, an adult in the autism community, I do think it's a lot easier for adults with autism to take that mask off than it is for kids and teenagers. Um, and I think even adults with autism diagnosed later in life, I don't I, I think there might be some caution, but it doesn't feel like there's a wall there so much as it is with teenagers.
0: Right. And, and this and goes into that, yeah. Go ahead.
1: And I and I was thinking maybe that does come from like as you get older, you get a bigger and broader worldview of like how things operate. And I, and I think that, you know, for preteens and teenagers, there is a huge amount of fear of, you know, I guess being separated from the pack if you're different. So I, I can sure. understand that. Yeah.
0: And And this also goes into a future episode where we're going to talk about, you know, when do you come out to your employer? How do you do that? Right. Masking is all a part of that. Yeah. So now, Nicole, you did talk about some of your experiences so far with masking. What other experiences do you have either in childhood or adulthood um, about masking?
1: Yeah, so I was I was diagnosed at roughly two years old in 1993. And for most of my toddlerhood, the goal of therapy was to, you know, cure my autism. I don't know if that was like,
0: quote unquote, cure it
1: directly. Like, I don't think. I, I would like to hope that the therapist that worked with me wouldn't directly say like that's the goal, but I, I would say the primary goal of the therapy was uh, mainstreaming me into elementary classes rather than sped classes. Mm-hmm. And I do think you know, not that I was aware of this as a kid, but as an adult looking back at the marketing of autism and just so much fear around like, uh, you know, autism is holding you hostage and autism is, you know, robbing your child of their true potential. I think that, you know, in the nineties there was a massive amount of fear around, you know, autism is bad. It's in a way, uh, you know, is treated like a disease, like, you know, your child is not thriving because of this thing. And so we need to, uh, rehab it away, I guess. Um, And I do think Temple Grandin's books, uh, Mm -hmm. which, you know, in 1995, 1994, she published a book called Thinking in Pictures. And that was a whole detailed description about, you know, this is how the autistic brain works. And so Mm -hmm. I think in the beginning of my diagnosis, there was definitely this, um, this push. And I think when Temple Grandin talked about her experience with autism and then, you know, some other autistic adults like John Elder Robinson started talking about their experience. I think that that, that hold on getting rid of autism lessened, but I, I would say it probably wasn't until at least 2010 that there was a shift mm. from you know curing masking autism to like oh autism is you know a part of neurodiversity and right right it's okay um and the person who founded the term um neurodiversity um i'm blanking on her name but that that term came into fruition in 1995 And so it was sort of the mid-90s was like the beginning of that conversation about autism not being this disability or a Mm -hmm. disease. So I think it took a really long time for people to get there. So I do feel like there was this broader cultural perception that really affected the way that I was treated, the way that I was educated Mm -hmm. um, about my autism. And, you know, for most of my childhood, I had no clue. Right, right. I didn't know why I was going to therapy. Um, I went to a lot of therapy, but I think, you know, being in that therapy, I didn't, I didn't have a clue as to why I was in therapy. I just had a lot of fun. Um, but behind the scenes, you know, from what my parents shared, like everything had to be a secret and you know, my parents Mm. are carrying this burden of like, what is her future going to look like? Yeah. So then I finally, I don't know. They felt that I was high-functioning enough to, you know, be in a mainstream class, and they very strongly discouraged my parents from telling me I had autism um, mm. out of concern that, like, my self-perception would be negatively impacted, right. and they didn't want my teachers to know out of fear that, regardless of my ability level, that I would get put in special ed classes because of my label. Mm. Um but I struggled. And my teachers were very aware that I struggled. And when I was in second grade, my, you know, my teacher asked my parents if I was autistic, which that's pretty bold. Like, I don't think we as teachers today are encouraged to do that. But, um, but my parents, they, they came out and they said, yeah, she's autistic. And they were afraid of what was going to happen. But my teacher was like, good. Now that I know, I can properly accommodate her. So
2: right, exactly. I think
1: my parents realized like, oh, these teachers are capable mm-hmm. of supporting her and they know mm-hmm. what to do. I don't know what led them to tell me that I was autistic, but they did tell me that I had autism because at when I was nine. Um, I, it didn't phase me. Like, I just yeah. remember hearing the news and I was like, okay. And I had my Game Boy and I was playing Pokemon and I just, you know, did okay, my whatever. own thing. Sure. And, uh, and it wasn't really until I was a preteen that I was starting to make this connection of like the label and how I was being treated by my peers. I think before the autism diagnosis, I mean, I wasn't really like bullied when I was like, in kindergarten or first grade, Mm -hmm. you know, I was highly sensitive. I cried a lot and I had, you know, awkward behaviors, but I wasn't really bullied. And it wasn't until like third or fourth grade that it kind of started happening. So, you know, you're able to create those relationships as a teen. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it made me hate myself, but I think that I was able to, um, create this connection of, you know, Cause and effect of like because I have this label and this is these are my behaviors. This is how I'm getting treated. Yeah. Um. I guess I have some opinions about you know parents disclosing their autism to their child, whether or not they do that. And this is just my opinion. You know, I I do think parents feel what is best for their child, and I am not out here to shame or criticize that. I just want to share my opinion from the perspective right. of an autistic adult and as somebody who, you know, taught in elementary schools and felt the pressure from parents, like, you know, don't say anything.
0: Right. So
1: I don't personally think it's a good idea for parents not to tell their child that they have autism out of concern that they'll feel different. Knowing that you are neurodiverse is very important for self-advocacy skills.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I I, I get concerned about, you know, oh, well, what if they get bullied? And what if they don't fit in is that more important than the self advocacy skills that they need to navigate through life
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know self advocacy skills are sort of an age appropriate thing but you know i think experiencing bullying for being different that initiates self advocacy skills so right. i i think that that's a huge thing that gets lost and if the parent is encouraging like oh fit in like how is the kid having that conversation about self-advocacy skills with a caseworker, a teacher, you know, supportive allies.
0: Right. Um, Right. And I agree with that as a Oh no, you go ahead. Yeah. I agree with that as a parent. I mean, I'm, my, my thoughts in explaining to Joshua that he has autism is to a, have an understanding of what that is. And then B um, grow into, okay, here's how I need to approach things um, either work or school or relationships, um, because I think differently. Right. Right. And so having that self-awareness, I think the earlier you do that, the better. So they can grow to understand what their challenges are a and B how to address those challenges.
1: Yeah. And, and I think about like, you know, as an adult today, like I hate staying out late at night. There Mm. are certain activities that I, my nervous system just can't handle. And so I do think self-advocacy involves like that self-awareness of who you are as a neurodiverse person to then make the executive decision of, okay, maybe these people are not necessarily toxic, but they're just not conducive Mm -hmm. to what my needs are. And if you're masking, you're fighting all of those issues to just go with the crowd. And and I do think that self-advocacy is being able to discern like, OK, if I if I don't jive with these people, where can I go to find people that I can jive with? Right. Um, and, you know, I think. Just knowing that you're autistic, you know, it, it's very important for having good self-esteem about the strengths and struggles about being neurodiverse. And And if sure. you think about it, there are adults who get diagnosed later in life and the amount of relief and self-confidence they get knowing mm-hmm. that they're autistic. Mm-hmm. It really, for them, it's a, a huge source of empowerment because it, mm-hmm. it just helps them to make sense of things. So, and so to answer you, some
0: of their questions, right? Why do exactly. I think this way? Why do I behave this way?
1: So, why can't parents empower their children to to come to that same self empowered realization that adults diagnose later in life get as well?
0: well? I think we went into some of those those reasons, right? Whether that's you know out of fear or ignorance or whatever it happens to be um but you know our opinions you and i in you know, our opinions on this show is that the sooner that a child knows um their challenges the better and sooner they're able to make adjustments for those
1: yeah definitely so i think my my biggest struggle with masking um i don't feel like i intentionally ever masked myself in fact after i did the colorado legislation thing. I, I don't know if it was the ego of like I got in the newspaper and everybody's yeah. giving me positive attention. Sure. Um, in addition, you know, having that understanding that being open about my autism is changing people's lives, mm. that was the moment where I was like, I love who I am, and I'm mm. going to be really open about myself. So I remember, yeah. basically, from that point forward, and especially in high school, I was really open about being autistic, because I just, I really felt that my autism was a source of strength. Yeah, and empowered. I had you were a, empowered yeah, and, and because of the Autism Society of Colorado, I had a lot of outside advocacy opportunities, and that really helped me to just really feel confident. The issue was that I had a lot of well-meaning adults around me, especially um, general ed teachers that were like, you know, don't be open about your autism because you're going to experience stigma, discrimination, bullying and job loss and mm. and it was it was always this like temper who you are. Mm-hmm. Don't express yourself too much because like something bad's going to happen to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I and I don't want to say that their advice is unreasonable, and especially mm-hmm. in the workforce, like there are lots of people who have experienced some pretty unfair discrimination you know for being open about their autism so i i do understand that advice for me personally as somebody who saw purpose and value with being open it just bothered me mm-hmm. i i just i hated feeling restricted in that way and i think even professionally even though i didn't feel directly pressured. I mean, except for when I was interviewing, there was always this part of me that's like, how can I be open mm-hmm. to see where people are truly at? Right. Um and so I took a lot of risks because as an advocate, I wanted to see how people would respond so then I can come on this podcast and I can talk about sure. it, you know, and sure. so not everybody with autism is like that, but because advocacy is my core passion, mm-hmm. um I just felt like I just felt like, where am I get going in life? If people are always telling me like tone it down or hide who you are to get through life. Like, right, right. How, how do you know? How do you know? Um, and the truth is a lot of these people who are not in the autism community, they don't know. Um, right. And so I guess another thing that I kind of found out is you know, there were a lot of people implicitly and explicitly telling me that I would never have friends, a significant other or a job if my autism showed. And so mm-hmm. I felt like there was this wall of like, everybody around me was so afraid of what was going to happen. And even though I took these risks, like I still had that fear inside right. of me of like, am I going to be single for the rest of my life? And, you know, I mean, being open about my autism in a career field that doesn't have a lot of autistic people, that that is scary. Yeah, definitely. And so I think that even though I was open about my autism, uh, I was influenced by these you know, media tropes of like, if you're this savant, like if you think about the good doctor as an example, mm-hmm. um, you get this respect if you're like this overachieving, right, right, right. highly intellectual person. And so I felt like I could protect myself from that loss if I could be this overachiever. I don't feel like I was an academic overachiever as a kid, but when I went to art school, like I really started being that way. And, and then I was like, well, if I had a PhD or if I had a master's degree, then mm-hmm. I could get that respect. And um, and I realized that all of those credentials was a form of masking because I felt like maybe I'd be acceptable if I was a certain type of autistic person that mm-hmm. people were familiar with rather than these negative stigmatic stereotypes. And that was really hard. And, and it, and it wasn't until I was, you know, in my thirties that I really reflected on how healthy that was. Yeah. And now that I'm at a point where I'm married, uh, I had a job, I'm in transition to another yes. career, yes. and you know, I have a very satisfying social life. I'm just so sick and tired of people telling me to be afraid of like of loss. and mm-hmm. I think that part of me is like I don't need those external things to prove that I'm successful. and then another part of me is like I've experienced a lot of loss to get to those places where I had those gains, mm-hmm. and I've had to learn to be very resilient and uh mindfully non attached in the face of loss to get to those places where I can have a really happy life, and so I do think right. you know parents they really push that fear of like don't experience adversity well, if there is loss, how do we how do we face that? How mm-hmm. do we fail forward? How do we build resilience? How do we step into our power? When we do experience alienation and discrimination for being ourselves i think that that skill is lost if we're always living in this place of fear that we need to hide ourselves absolutely um anyway that was me as a kid as an adult um you know as i said i i feel like the older i get the more and more open i am about my my autism and I think it was kind of in my late 20s that I realized, like, I want my advocacy to be my profession. I don't mm-hmm. want it to be this side thing while I do something else. Okay. And uh, and when I would hear like, well, you know, if you're open about your autism, they're going to discriminate against you. Well, first off, how do you know if you don't get a job that it's because you're open about your autism? It could be a myriad of other things, you know, being right. a new teacher. Like I I applied for jobs that were not necessarily in my artistic discipline. So it's mm-hmm. like you don't get confirmation that you're being rejected because you're autistic.
0: Right. Nobody's so, gonna tell you that.
1: Right. And and I very strongly believed that my autism was an asset to my work as a teacher.
2: Absolutely. And,
1: and I wanted and I felt like as a brand new teacher. How am I going to stand out as an applicant unless I talk about the extra things that I can add to a school community?
2: Right. That makes and sense. so,
1: you know, I did talk about my advocacy in my uh, interview, despite people telling me not to. Mm-hmm. And uh, when prompted and asked, you know, oh, wow, you're so passionate about autism advocacy. Why is that? I'm going to tell them it's because I'm autistic and yeah. here's why it's an asset. And I've gotten hired at two different schools for being open about that. Yeah. And so I, I get really frustrated when people are like, you know, that fortune telling of and catastrophizing of like, well, this is this bad thing is going to happen to you if if you do this. And I guess the risks I take are in an effort to really prove like, is that actually true? Right. And if it's true today, is it going to be true five to 10 years from now? Um, yeah. and,
0: and I think that, you know, that's that's all an amazing experiences that you've had. And it validates who you are as a person. When we talk about, you know, whether to come out um, as autistic to your employer, it's it's nuanced, right? There's going to be a lot of different things. Um, and I can't wait for that episode.
1: Yeah. And, and it really depends on the field you're in. I felt like I could be comfortable uh, being open about my autism for an education position right. because everybody in education works with a person with autism and, and schools really like having teachers with diverse backgrounds. And so sure. an extra I, I felt, expert. Yeah. yeah, I felt very uh, trusting and, you know, I felt like I don't want to work for a school that doesn't see that as an asset. Um, but I mm-hmm. think a lot of people did. And my principal at the time that hired me was so blown away. She was like, you're one of our top two candidates. And so I think in addition to disproving that, you know, you can get hired being open, but I think it's also about seeing like, is an employer ready to handle it? You know, what is their perception? And if we always live in fear, kind of like what you were talking about with Josh, like we create these stories in our head of an assumption but mm-hmm. if we don't take those risks, we don't truly know what people come into our lives that are actually ready to receive us and support us. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that principal that was blown away by me, she was fantastic. Yeah. I loved her and she connected me with a lot of administrators who also saw my gifts and my potential. And so, yeah. you know, it, they're, they're, those employers are out there. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to know that they're out there if we don't take those risks to be open. Sure. And, and that's, you know, when you're ready to be open, but you know, for me, it was like, I wanted to test the waters like right then and there at the interview. Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, But then you're also in an education, you're in a profession that um, talks about autism in terms of their clientele, AKA their their students.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, I would say um, my parents have been very supportive of my openness with my autism because they saw my passion for advocacy and my desire to help others with my story. And for, gosh, at least like seven years, roughly, we did a lot of work with the Autism Society of Colorado. So I really appreciate that my mom was such an integral part of collaborating with them and my work with them and and working with the executive director at the time um, really empowered me in my journey as an advocate. Um, and I will say, despite all of these successes with being open, I felt very limited in the way that I could express my autism around specifically parents of children with autism, which was mm-hmm. really ironic because my mom was like, man, if I if you had a teacher that had autism, I would be so thrilled, but I, it was just such a mixed bag being around, you know, parents of children with autism and Mm -hmm. students with autism. And I really was optimistic, like, like I said earlier, that it was going to be a relief, but um, I mean, I can't tell you how many special educators told me not to disclose my autism to my autistic students' parents out of concern that they may respond negatively to it. Mm. Um, You know, and that's the fear that those parents had critical, uncomfortable, or unaccepting right. feelings about autism. Yes. The parent yes. might judge my ability to be a good teacher because they recognize autistic struggles in their own child. And they might go, well, mm. you know, that teacher may have the same struggles and they're not a good fit, which is so ironic yeah, because yeah. it's like, who better to support an autistic child than an autistic adult?
0: Sure. You would think.
1: Um, And I don't know, you know, I sometimes I'd be open to parents and then all of a sudden it's like, give me your thoughts on ABA therapy and medication. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I can't do that. That's a conflict of interest as a teacher. And, and I, and I noticed that this whole tiptoeing that I had to do happened a lot more in elementary school than it did at the high school level. Mm -hmm. I think by high school parents are just like, yep, this is who my kid is. Um, But every once in a while, you know, you get that. And I remember I was in an IEP meeting And um, I didn't say anything about my autism. And I was working with a student who was very talented at art. And I got him into a district art show despite him having um, special needs. Mm -hmm. And the parent was like, I just wish there was, you know, a teacher with autism that just got him. And I'm just sitting in this IEP meeting just stewing. Mm. And I didn't say anything. Mm. And I was just so angry because that parent was looking for that night and I couldn't come out because the special educators didn't want me to.
2: Interesting. Um,
1: and and I've been in um, I've been in webinars where parents are like, "We need more neurodiverse teachers," and it's like, well, I'm trying to be open about my neurodiversity, and there are just so many parents that are just not comfortable with that. And it's like this fear that if I'm open, then that impacts this bubble that they're creating to keep their child safe, and it's right. just. It's tough.
0: It just it um, goes, that, that whole goes into the, what is the environment of your school and what are your personal supports as a person on the spectrum by the administration? Yeah. Right. Because you need somebody to have your back. If you are, have position, you know, this position that you have, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to be open about my autism because I see it as a resource and uh, to my students and to other teachers. And so this is gonna be my position on that. Are you comfortable with this? Yes, we can support you. So we understand that there might be some pushback from some parents, but overall we see it as an asset. So therefore we're gonna support you, right? That might be different in other circumstances. You just kind of have to know um, who your supports are um, and how you can benefit your students.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, And I have experimented with, you know, disclosing to my students all of my students that i had autism right um and you know i think that that's i don't want to say a catch 22 but it's like i didn't feel i was treated any differently by my students because they knew i had autism like mm-hmm. they're so self self absorbed that they, yes, don't, they don't they I, don't they don't care true. about what their teacher is up to
0: right but right.
1: but the funny thing is i felt like my autism reveal was way better received by my neurotypical students than my autistic students. And ironically, mm. the kids who really resonated with, you know, my stories and my support were students with ADHD, mm. um, especially when it came to like support with executive functioning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I feel like if I shared stories about my autism and it was related to, uh, you know, a neurotypical students experience, like they were, really positively receiving. And I think a lot of it had to do with the relationship they had with me. Um, and I remember like I had some neurotypical students that were like, oh, I have a sibling that's on the spectrum. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so glad that I can meet another person with autism. And I even had a neurotypical student who was dating someone with autism. And they were like, oh, can you give me some advice? But then when it came to my students with autism, I had like one student in my three and a half years of teaching that just gravitated to me and used me as like a support person. Mm -hmm. Most of the students just, I don't know, like some of them were just kind of unfazed, kind of like when you're. Indifferent. Yeah. Yeah. They were indifferent. Um, Some of them, like I would have, if I knew that they had autism on their IP, like I would maybe pull them aside and, have a private conversation and say like, Hey, I just want to let you know I'm autistic as well. If you need any support or you want to talk about anything related to autism, let me know. And, you know, some students were really relieved. Some were just totally walled off, kind of like what you were talking about earlier with Josh, where it's like they're just so guarded Mm -hmm. and and they don't want that connection because they don't want to admit who they are. So I guess to summarize autistic adults in my experience and have been uh, being that space for autistic students. So I get frustrated when I feel like I have to mask because of somebody else's insecurity about autism. And I Mm. just don't like being forced into that position because of a fear of conflict in the workplace. Okay. Yeah. All right.
0: So let's, let's go into um, other forms of masking. Now we talked about this a little bit. Um, This is the um, stereotypical overachieving autistic person or the autistic savant so from the perspective of neurotypical people wow, it's only acceptable if you're openly autistic if you're extremely gifted or talented right you have these super um, human skills of math or that's why the stereotype that autistic people are do well in IT for example because they're brilliant with math um, so another another example that you talked about earlier is the um, autistic media trope of the good doctor so in these cases a person is less likely to experience alienation and bullying for their neurodiverse quirks if they are gifted or talented beyond the standard of a neurotypical person talent is seen as a way to earn respect however not every person with autism is a gifted savant or overachieving but this puts immense pressure on that person with autism that they should be gifted or talented in something in order to earn respect. So as long as the negative um, aspects of autism aren't seen, the positive overarching aspects can be praised and respected, and this can prevent having true identity.
1: And one aspect of that true identity is just recognizing your flaws and that it's okay to have flaws. Like you don't have to be a perfectionist about yourself in order to earn respect from everyone else. Um, One of the ways that I was able to break away from the perpetual cycle of masking was understanding the medical and social models of disability and how they reinforce masking. So the medical model is the belief that symptoms and behaviors of disability should be cured, fixed, or eliminated in order to achieve a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. Though there isn't a cure for autism, masking creates the illusion that a person is cured of autism. The medical model of disability creates the belief that there is something wrong with being autistic, creating low self-worth, which increases the likelihood of a person masking their autism. And it removes the onus on the neurotypical person to create an accommodating space for a neurodiverse person to thrive. It is the responsibility and labor of the neurodiverse person to fix what is wrong with them in order to access a better quality of life. And I would say the medical model has been the prevailing perception of autism and all other right. types of neurodiverse diagnoses,
0: mm-hmm. probably
1: up until the 90s. Yes. Um, then a lot of uh, adults with autism, neurodiverse adults, as well as you know neur- neurotypical allies, talked about the social model of disability, which is that disability is the inability to fully participate in home and community life. Restrictions are imposed by society and impairments are consequences caused by that restriction. Mm -hmm. The solution is changing society rather than fixing the person with the disability. Mm -hmm. And you end discrimination and oppression through education, accommodation and universal design. These change, this changes the way people think about disabilities. So I think it's important to understand what the medical and social models of disability are. And they explain on a macro cultural level, why people on the autism spectrum mask and why Mm -hmm. neurotypical people may encourage a person with autism to mask. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Devin Price who wrote the book Unmasking Autism states, refusing to perform neurotypically is a revolutionary act of disability justice. It is also a radical act of self-love, but in order for autistic people to take our masks off and show our real authentically disabled selves to the world, we first have to feel safe enough to get reacquainted with who we really are.
0: All right, so that goes into some examples of how to unmask, right? So masking is very subjective. Uh, There's not a one size fits all solution to unmasking your autism. Um, A life of complete unmasking is not an overnight process. Also, some people may prefer to mask their autism in certain circumstances. Um, Getting an autism diagnosis or doing self-diagnostic assessment, getting validation that you have autism releases the burden to unmask, and more self-compassion, connecting with other people in the autism community, especially other people with autism. Uh, doing more research on autism masking, like the book that we'll put in our show notes link. Um, doing uh, Finding alternative forms of unmasking personal expression, such as making artwork, dancing, writing, social media, content creation, etc. Um, learning self-advocacy skills and requesting accommodations. Learning about ableism and cultural generation perspectives on disability to understand unconscious reinforcement of masking. Um, journaling about instances of masking make a tier list of aspects in your life that can be uncomfortable aspects that are more challenging and aspects that would be better to stay masked in for example Uh, finding safe spaces and safe people to unmask yourself around we talked about this invest invest in a therapist that understands autism Um, have educational conversations about autism seek out accommodations make external life changes uh, that better support the process of unmasking. Developing a mindful non-attachment practice related to triggers of masking and understanding the stakes around the goal of masking and releasing those emotional attachments can help. Now you have an example.
1: I do. And I, and I talked about it earlier where, um, I think some people feel, and I, I, I think that this is kind of just a so socially thing, uh, mm-hmm. across a lot of people's perspectives, but It's that idea that if you 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 are perceived as successful and you fit into society, if you have certain things. So for me, it was friends, career, job, and getting married. Hmm. And I just got, ironically, once I got all of those things, I was like, I'm I'm just so tired of working hard to prove that I can get those things. And I think another type of of masking that I did was like I'm autistic but look at all the things I can do. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's where that overachieving thing came from. So it was like I am autistic and I can get married and at the time it was like oh isn't that so revolutionary? But it's not. You know, mm-hmm. there are plenty of people with autism that get married and and it's right, that right. idea of like neurotypical people getting entertained by wow, look at look at what this person can overcome and look at all these things that they can get that we have. But it's like it's not revolutionary. Like autistic people can get employed, we can get married, we can have a collection of friends. Like, right, right. We don't need those things to, to prove that we're acceptable. And additionally, you know, I think it's important that, you know part of unmasking is being able to say, I struggle, I, yeah. I'm average, I'm not perfect. Um, you know, there are people with autism that struggle to be and and you know live in an independent adult lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And does that make them less of a person? Does that make them stupid? No, you know, they're authentic and they're worthy of love and respect. And, and I think that, you know, it's just letting go of that, those scripts that other people put on you and being able to determine for yourself, what makes me happy, what mm-hmm. makes me feel valuable and respected in society, not what other people think I should have in order right. to do those things. Right.
0: Okay, so then this goes into what the benefits of unmasking are. Uh, stronger physical and mental health, self-compassion, healing from complex PTSD, from social situations, pursuing things that you are passionate about, finding purpose in life, uh, finding your tribe. I love that one. Uh, resilient self-expression, Self-advocacy skills that we've talked about and setting healthy boundaries. So, Nicole, how are you? Are in the process of your unmasking your unmasking autism today? I think you've talked a lot about them.
1: Yeah, I have. I you know to recap or share new things. Um, I think that my ability to feel empowered in my unmasking process, first and foremost, was putting the needs of my physical and mental health first. Nice. Um, mm-hmm masking teaches you to ignore those needs or be in denial of them. Mm -hmm. And that has affected my personal and professional lifestyle and improved my confidence with self-advocacy. One of the biggest reasons I left teaching was because it was taking a huge toll on my mental health and, and I was trying to just push through it. And I was trying to be resilient and putting my physical and mental health first made me realize like my body just can't handle teaching. And rather than trying to change it, fix it, push through, I just realized, like, this is my body has limits and I need to make my environment more accommodating. And that involved leaving my career. Mm. Um, But, you know, I'm transitioning to being a counselor for people on the autism spectrum. And and I want to serve the autism community in my terms and right, I, right. I'm just getting really tired of of being around neurotypical people who, for better or worse, are just limited on their understanding of autism, limited in what neurodiverse employees can provide in the workplace. And, mm-hmm. you know, like as I said earlier, like I'm not gonna mask my autism because of somebody else's issue with it. Right. Um and so I want to have a career where I have control of my professional environment so that I can mask or unmask um to my full capability.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and I have, you know, I I've been practicing mindfulness for half of my life at at this point and having a non-attachment practice has helped me to release, you know, things that I depended on to mask my autism such as certifications, social skills training and perfectionism.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so the goal is to be more accepting of who I am in the present moment rather than constantly fix myself to meet neurotypical standards of socializing which I feel like I got trained and conditioned to do in the therapy that I've had like my entire life but especially when I was a toddler. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I Constantly being able to surround myself with friends and family that celebrate my autism and empower my professional and creative passions with autism advocacy. And if they don't do that, they're out of my life. Okay. Um, and I, I've talked about this in previous episodes. Um, you know, racial equity training really taught me a lot of terms and concepts that relate to systemic, cultural, and internalized ableism. So there's a lot of intersectionality, even though they're not the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that really taught me that, you know, if somebody is micromanaging my social imperfections, that's not necessarily a flaw, that's a stigma. And so I'm more capable of identifying it and being able to call somebody in to address that rather than uh, respond to it and go, oh, well, I need to work on myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And the more times that I bought into that belief of like i'm the problem i'm the flaw i need to fix myself that just brews internalized ableism in your heart Mm. and unmasking is being able to set those boundaries and say you know i i have the right to make human mistakes and i'm sorry you don't like the way that i carry myself
0: right if people if people reject that
1: yeah. Well, yeah. And and it, it definitely happens, but that's why you just, you know, need to stand in your integrity. Right. All right. So Brett, how is Josh in the process of unmasking his autism and how are you supporting that process as a parent?
0: Okay. So we talked about transitions with Joshua. Um, he's currently transitioning from um, high school to college. Right. And so what I thought was amazing about him is that as he was going through college, first he did community college, and now he's at um, a university in Denver, that he he realized that he had struggles, right? And he, he can self-advocate. So what he did is he one day he asked me, he goes, um, Dad, can I get a copy of my IEP? And I go, why do you need that? He goes, because I need to ask for accommodations, and my counselor wants a copy of this. And then... That, to me, spoke volumes. It's like he's he's advocating for himself. He's taking the steps. I didn't need even know that he was doing this, but he is he is saying, "I have this, I, and I have these needs. So that I thought was awesome. The other thing that um, he was doing when he transitioned from community college to Denver, um he had to take a train from uh, one part of the city to the other part of the city right and that's a whole new experience and you know the the college campus it's a bigger college and that's a whole new experience so he asked for for help and as he registered um, he got that student ambassador that we were talking about earlier that was an advocate for him so this person would meet him off the train walk him to school say and show him around and that kind of thing and that was a huge huge relief for him because of his uh, transition struggles
1: So is there anything like you or um, Josh's mom are doing specifically to, I don't know, encourage that ability to be open?
0: Well, it's it's about, you know, a lifetime of saying, you know, you you have this condition, you're autism, but, you know, it's a strength and you have challenges, you know, what are your challenges? So it's it's teaching him to self-advocate, right? So always encouraging him to self-advocate. And then when he has struggles, it's like, come to us, you know, what what's going on? And so having that open communication either with me or with his teachers or um, other support staff at school that can help him with uh, whatever he's currently struggling with.
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing that a parent can do to support a child to unmask is definitely teaching him those self-advocacy skills. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like I said earlier, it's just this universally applicable self-empowerment thing and uh, and they can use it wherever they want to, even if they mm-hmm. don't wanna be open about their autism in, in certain situations. Right. What advice do you have for parents to support their child to unmask their autism?
0: So again, we kind of talked about this in, in earlier in the podcast, but I think the best thing that you can do is find friends and teachers that support you as being a neurodiverse person, right? Building that understanding that we all are different and face challenges is key we need those relationships
1: yeah definitely my advice you? my advice would be to create a safe space for the person with autism to stim, not make eye contact and all you know create that safe space for all those mm-hmm. openly autistic behaviors do not punish or shame a child for autistic behaviors giving explicit permission in one-on-one meetings can be very relieving um for a person with autism, a supportive authority figure can make a huge difference for learning that there are some people that are safe to unmask around. Um, And, you know, being able to explicitly, you know, for teachers to be able to say like, hey, if we're going to have a meeting, you don't have to make eye contact with me. Mm. The amount of relief that the student has is like, you can see it in their body. They just, they just sigh it out and, Mm. and. It really, it really makes a difference.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, have discussions about people with autism achieving in fields that the person is passionate about. Um, be a safe person to role-play asking for accommodations and support all self-advocacy efforts. Do not take a fear-mongering stance that there are adverse consequences to a person with autism being open about themselves. Yeah. If they're concern, discuss it with a caseworker, If there is a discussion about unmasking, talk about it from the perspective of pros and cons and let the child determine whether unmasking is right for them. You know, have the child have their own exploration of what this looks like rather than, you know, the parent creating barriers or creating walls um, to keep them safe and incubated. Um, And it's always good to get education on neurotypical biases when it comes to support for a person with autism to mask. What consequences are you afraid of? How can you empower that person to unmask? And how do you personally feel about autism? So let's talk about unmasking from the perspective of being a teacher or employer. Brett, what advice do you have for these people if they have a student or employee that is being open about their autism?
0: I think, we, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, the um, The most important thing to do, I think, is to provide a supportive environment for students and employees, right? Use language of inclusion with intention and follow that through with commitment. How about you?
1: Um, so I think that the the advice to teachers and employers is pretty similar. And I would also say that the disclosure process that a student... Well, a student or a caseworker does with a teacher or, you know, basically self-advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that models what it's going to look like when they are, you know, seeking work and they right. have to disclose, you know, with their boss. So for an employer, be equipped to handle the disclosure process. How are you going to emotionally and financially accommodate for that person's needs Mm -hmm. Um, we were just at a neurodiversity workplace conference in March. And one of the fears that a lot of employers have, uh, when a person discloses is how much is it going to cost to make those accommodations? And that Mm -hmm. can be one of the reasons that a person with autism can be let go. Um, and I think that it is really important that those accommodations have a little bit of flexibility with the understanding of. You know what the environment is, and right. you know how much is it going to cost the organization to provide that. And I think if the if the employee is empowered to have those numbers in place, it's going to make it easier for the employer to not go in with this anxiety and this guardedness mm-hmm. no. about what to do. Um, be respectful of the bravery and vulnerability that it takes for an autistic employer to disclose their autism. A successful accommodation process goes a long way for a person with autism to feel safe at work, especially with messages they've heard their whole life that they'll lose their job if their autism shows. Mm -hmm. Create a safe, accepting, respectful, and equitable work environment for all employees. So, you know, you're not outing somebody for special treatment. You just say, you know, um, what applies for this employee There's, you know, open application to other employees, and it's very similar to teachers who teach to the IEP, you know, chunking things, uh, you know, if kids need extended time, like if three quarters of the class need extended time, give them extended time. Mm. Um, You know, there's a way that you you can support that person without those accommodations being obvious to other people. Um, if a person with autism sees their neurodiversity as an asset to a work environment, support them to find opportunities to do that. Do not put that all on the person with autism to do the work. If you are explicitly saying this is awesome, let's collaborate, put in the effort to meet that person halfway so that there can be opportunities made. And I can't tell you how many jobs I've had where, you know, my employer is like, this is awesome. And You know, we see the asset and then I'm like, all right, let's have a conversation. Oh, no, I'm busy. Oh, I have to take care of these other things. And you just the person with autism can't carry the burden to initiate something that benefits a community. Right. If there are challenges with social emotional skills, executive functioning or behavior, do so with the goal to improve and support rather than to shame. Mm hmm. Don't judge that person's professionalism or competence based on challenging behaviors or stigmatic social traits of autism. Autism is a spectrum. And apply equity and inclusion training that would benefit BIPOC and LGBTQ employees to neurodiverse employees. There's an intersectionality uh, of equity inclusion with all groups. And it's not like you have to do extensive training on each group to provide an equitable and inclusive environment, at least to provide that foundation.
0: Right, can you really quickly explain what the BIPOC acronym is?
1: Yeah, so that is uh, Black Indigenous People of Color. Okay. All right. Um, We're gonna close with some book recommendations that talk about masking in great depth and provide journaling prompts that focus on healing masking issues from the perspective of neurodiversity, racial identity, LGBTQ plus identity, and mental health. The first book is Understanding, or understanding Autism. That's our podcast. That's right. Um, Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price. Um, Devin goes into tremendous depth on why people with autism mask and gives a lot of advice on how to unmask. Dr. Price thoroughly explains how masking impacts multiple diverse groups of people with autism and talks about his own experience with masking as an autistic transgender man. So I really like this book because, you know, Devin is, is talking about it from the perspective of being LGBTQ+, as well as um, talking to a lot of organizations that support autistic people of color. So it is a tremendously helpful book. Um, another book that's great is called The Healing Otherness Handbook by Dr. Mm-hmm. Stacy Reicherzer. So this book does not focus specifically on autism, but marginalized identities as a whole. And uh, Dr. Reicharder talks about it from the perspective of you know being transgender, gay, um, you know if you are a plus-sized person, if you're a person of color. It's it's pretty much anybody who has experienced marginalization for a certain aspect of their identity. Mm -hmm. So she discusses what identity-based bullying is and how to step into your power as a person of difference. And she talks about the five rules of fear, which really made a difference in my understanding of how to unmask. So those five rules are, you shouldn't complain, you better tone it down, you must work twice as hard, you shouldn't feel resentful, and you cannot change the world, Mm -hmm. as well as how to overcome each rule. In the future, I would love to do a, a podcast episode specifically about Just this book. Yeah. I mean, this book has been powerful. It has really changed my life and my perception of how I've been treated. I, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, the next book is called Trauma, Stigma, and Autism: Developing Resilience and Loosening the Grip of Shame by Gordon Gates. Gordon talks about how people with autism experience shame-based trauma, how they cope with shame and how to heal internalized shame about being autistic. We're gonna do a future podcast episode about autism and shame, and we're gonna reference this book. Um, it's it's also fantastic. Um, Nick Dubin, uh, he is a autistic man who has training in psychology. And so he's written a couple of books on mental health, and two of them are Autism Spectrum and Depression and Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety. We are also going to do future podcast episodes that really go into depth about the things he talks about. Um, But to summarize, both books have an in-depth firsthand analysis of how the experience of marginalization and stigmatization cause anxiety and depression. And um, to keep going, uh, All the Weight of Our Dreams on Living Racialized Autism, it is an anthology book edited by Lydia XC Brown. Moranika Jiwa Onaiwu, and E. Ashkenazi. Um, These are all personal essays, short stories, and poems that talk about the experience of having autism as a person of color. Hmm. Um, Spectrum's Autistic Transgender People in Their Own Words by Maxfield Sparrow. These are also uh, personal essays, short stories, and poems that talk about the experience of being a transgender autistic person. And then the last book is the perfectionism workbook by taylor newendorp i've used this workbook to overcome my struggles with social perfectionism which has definitely been rooted in masking and so understanding why i have perfectionism and and really reflecting on how i overcome that has been a very very huge help um with learning how to unmask
0: awesome all right, so we're coming to the end of the episode. So we have, in this episode, we have talked about what autistic masking is, why masking is encouraged in some um, circumstances, the physical and mental health consequences of masking, how the medical and social models of disability reinforce this masking idea, the benefits of unmasking, how to unmask, and a list of resources on the topic of unmasking. All right, so our Say next...
1: What the next episode is, because we switch the order a little bit yeah go ahead uh all right so our next episode is going to be about autism and transition struggles
0: absolutely so, lots to talk about on that one too
1: oh yeah well i mean when you get to an hour to an hour and a half on these podcast episodes there's a lot to talk about right there is <laughs> All right, follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode, which you can find on our social media or our website, which is understandingautism.info. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and all other sites that provide podcasts. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at at understandingautism.info. All
0: right. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer.
1: And I'm Nicole Cabillas.